Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature an interview between Lauren Decker and E.V. Hill. In 1961, Dr. Hill took charge as pastor of the historical Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church of Los Angeles, where he remained the beloved pastor for 42 years. He supported and was a friend to Ronald Reagan and was even offered a full-time position by President Reagan at the White House. Listen as Dr. Hill discusses the joy of the Lord. Dr. E.V. Hill is with us from the Mount Zion Missionary Church. We're going to visit just a bit and uh, share his life with you on the air right now. Real good to meet you. We've listened to you teach for so long, and we just have a great respect for the ministry God's given you. So welcome. Well, I'm certainly glad to have this chance to chat with you. I know of your ministry also, and I've appreciated it over the years. I'm more than delighted to be in Boston uh, these several days where there's no snow on the ground. <laughs> I must confess that uh, Boston is one of, it has to be one of the prettiest cities I've seen. Yeah, and it's getting prettier all the time. I think the first time that we really became acquainted with you, we had a, a tape that, from a message you had given at Moody Founders Week, and the story that just touched everyone's heart was when you went to school on Mama's Prayer. Yeah. I want to ask you about that a little bit. and and talk about the behind-the-scenes things that that has meant to you over the years. We've heard a lot of people talk about the power of prayer on this broadcast over the years. But, I mean, something like that, that illustration, and maybe you can just recap the story briefly for us, but that illustration of what prayer can do must have dramatically changed your life. What have you seen prayer do as a result of that? Yes, well, of course, I was fortunate uh, to have been brought up in... Uh, a community called Sweet Home. Mm. It was a community whose land was given for the church and the school by a man whose father was a slave owner. And so ex-slaves founded the community. And uh, everything that happened in that community was the result of prayer because these ex-slaves had no capital, and yet they had to be capitalistic in the society. They had no education, and yet they had to be trained in order to exist. Uh, they had no theology, theological training, and yet they had to have a church. Uh, they had no homes in which to live, and yet they had to build them as carpenters. Uh, and so every aspect of Sweet Home uh, was a miracle. Uh, how people knew without training how to build houses and to farm lands and to organize a school and build a church and develop an industrial education department was a miracle. So that even though I lived in a log cabin, a uh, two-room log cabin as a child, I was not born there. I was born in Columbus, Texas, but by the grace of God, uh, my mother moved to San Antonio when I was only a year and a half, and God directed her to uh, a place right next door to the sister of the lady who finally took me to the country. And she took me to the country just to help mother out. Mother had four children and made $12 a week. 
So she said, uh, Mother Langram said, all of our children are grown. Let us take this boy and help you. And we come to town twice a month, so you'll keep in contact with him. And that's how I got the sweet home. But it was God directing, uh, because uh, I guess that every day of my life, uh, from uh, four years old on, uh, uh, showed uh, the greatness and the goodness and the mercy of God. I can't remember a day when somebody in that community wasn't testifying what God had done again, whether that was physical healing or what, uh, keeping them, uh, causing it to rain when the crops looked like they were going to all wither and go and they'd get together and pray and God would send enough rain. Whatever it was, uh, it gave me my love for people. It gave me my uh, desire to help one another because uh, at 11 years old, when I uh, got up one morning, I found Papa dead in the chair. And so from 11 until I finished high school, there was nobody but Mom and me. And when food was completely out and snow was on the ground, somebody would ride by on a horse and throw off a sack of flour and bacon and some preserves, and, 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 and we'd eat. Uh, so I came into the so-called enlightened age, beginning in the 50s, with that kind of background, do you say? Yeah. And uh, that kind of background has shaped my entire ministry. Uh, it's, it, it, it has enabled me to tell people to relax themselves in my office and let's talk. And you can't bring up something that I don't know about. You you don't have you don't you haven't had any poverty that I have not seen, mm -hmm. and any pain that I have not felt. So sit down, let's talk, and then I can bring forth uh, uh, miracle after miracle. Uh, you know, way before I the miracle of my college life was the miracles of my high school days, and the miracle of me. Uh, uh, in my own county, white doctors would not see uh, Negro people uh, for the most part, maybe if there was, you know, a wreck or something. Uh, so we had to learn from herbs and, and what have you how to keep well. And that was a miracle, you see. Is that a ministry in itself? I, I think of the Apostle Paul. He said, you know, look at our lives. We're examples unto you. Did God bring you through that so that you can, today in 1985, say, look at my life. I'm a living testimony of what God can do. Is, is that a special ministry that someone like you, it's a rarity to see that, I guess. Is that a special anointing that you have? I believe it is. It, it's a difficult ministry because we now live in an age that doesn't believe, do you see? Mm -hmm. And uh, when they hear me talking, they think I'm just trying to pull on the emotions of people. Uh, but uh, I've experienced what I'm talking about. I've experienced surviving uh, the white uh, uh, segregated discrimination without being bitter. And uh, so many of my young friends uh, interpret my lack of bitterness as being somewhat domicile or Uncle Tomish, mm -hmm. when really it's a victory that I have uh, accomplished. Let me ask you, how can you go through growing up in the South and seeing the lynchings, the, the hatred? Uh, you know, we've all seen pictures in Life magazine of the fire hoses on the, on the riots, on just the peaceful demonstrations, never mind anything that got out of hand. How do you go through that without getting bitter? We live in a racist society, a segregated society, not just black versus white, but 
I think of Florida, where our team member Steve Brown is, and the, and the Cubans, and the people who have come there. It's just div dividing people everywhere. How do you get the victory? Well, I think there are three things. Number one, I have in my own life so many victories that we have won. I'm a charter member of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. I nominated Martin Luther King as president. Mm -hmm. So, number one, I have so many victories. And, you know, I guess if you were on a team that had lost every game, you could easily be very bitter. You know? We know about that here in Boston. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but when you have had so many victories, yeah. do you see what I mean? Uh, 1947, I showed the grand champion pig of the State Fair of Texas. And in those days, if the grand champion was uh, a Negro, uh, he got 50 cents a pound. If it was a white boy, he got $3 a pound. Uh, I showed the grand champion in 47 and got $3 a pound. I was the first one to get equal price. Uh, and, and that was a victory. Must have been some pig. Oh, yeah, he was quite a pig. <laughs> uh, I have, we have, uh, we've come so far uh, and we've had so many victories. Uh, young people today uh, in my race are hard-pressed to point out specific examples of what they are bitter about. Uh, you see, I know about the white fountain, the colored fountain, the white restroom, the black restroom. Get up and go to the back of the uh, bus, uh, to the front of the train, to the bottom of the boat. Uh, we have problems today, but none compared to where we were in the 40s and the 30s that I lived in. So having experienced the victories, having started out with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the Martin Luther Kings, and having been at Atlanta and Birmingham, well, let's go back to Birmingham, uh, when I was there, when the dogs were biting and when the water was flashing, and now to see the mayor of Birmingham, a black man, and now to go to Birmingham and walk into the Birmingham Hyatt and to see all three of the people at the counter, black people. It is sort of a, I've had so many victories until I'm encouraged. Now, for those who did not go through that, and for those who are dealing with this subtle underground racism, uh, they don't have many victories to talk about, and as a result, uh, they have nothing but this bitterness. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing is that I've had a genuine conversion. I've had a genuine conversion. I can remember when I hated white people with a passion. That was my 17, 18-year-old uh, uh, freshman year in college. Uh, but I met during that same year... Uh, the first white man that I considered a Christian, I shall never forget, Dr. W.F. Howard, uh, we were going to drive from Texas to Nashville to the Baptist Student Union, and they had selected me, and he was, there was about two white people and about four uh, Negroes in the car, and I just knew that we were going to see racism out of those white people at its worst. Yeah. And this fellow, W.F. Howard, became and he is still today one of the greatest Christians I've ever met. Uh, when we got to a place that would not serve us all, then we all ate bologna. Uh, when we got to a place that had no restrooms where all of us could go in, uh, we went to some bushes down the road somewhere. And um, he never apologized. He never, he never said, I'm sorry, it's that way for colored people. 
He just said, well, we'll just go right on and we'll suffer, you know, together. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. And for the first time in my life, that was the first white Christian. Everybody else that I had met as a child uh, uh, was a part of the racist system. And this man wasn't. And so all of a sudden, this man brought out of me all that was in me that was also racist, it is. Mm -hmm. And I had to embrace him as a Christian. And thus, since 18 years old, I have had pure Christianity, untainted by ethnic, uh, justifiable racism. <laughs> you, say, you can hardly be a part of an ethnic group that has been persecuted without having some justifiable feelings against other people. But God took even that out of me. Now, I realize that point, too, and there is a third, but let me ask you, yeah. is it still easier to have that untainted Christian love for a, a fellow believer, and does the old man in you still sometimes retaliate a bit or want to against those in the world who don't know that kind of love? Uh, I don't want to seem, uh, I don't want to project the idea of holiness, but really very seldom it does. Mm -hmm. I, and that's one of the uh, problems that I'm having now out of a lot of my black, black brothers. I very seldom, if ever, take a position ethnically. Mm -hmm. I take a Christian position on the matter. Do you see? God bless you. And uh, that has gotten me into a lot of trouble uh, because uh, there are people who believe that because I don't, I'm trying to placate white evangelicals. I'm trying to play up to them. Uh, yet in some of the meetings I'm in, if they would listen to me, I'm straight down the line. I, you know, I don't quibble. I don't uh, vacillate from one side to the other. But it's a Christian position. Thus, I'm the same way when I meet with my people. Do you see? I don't. I don't speak one way before white people and another way before black people. I speak one way. Now that can get you in trouble on both sides of the, of, of the color question because most white evangelicals are not prepared for a black man to just speak the truth to them. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I mean? They want him to kind of speak like they talk. Do you see? and kind of justify what they feel, do you see? On the other hand, most black people are not prepared at all for you to do anything but blame white folks. They're not prepared for you to talk about self-responsibility and economic development of your own and respect for your own people and let's get educated, let's get trained, let's clean up our own backyard. They will chuck eggs at you if you start talking like that. And Fortunately, I talk like that all over the country, and I, therefore I'm picketed, I'm talked about. But on the other hand, God moves in. And I think finally the third point is because of my hope of the future. Mm -hmm. I plan to all of my life do everything I can that the day will hasten when a whole lot of people can enjoy the joy of the Lord without thinking about color, mm -hmm. you see. So now that's my motivation. I, I, I want that to become a part of the experiences of a whole lot of people. And that, that's why I continue to go like I am. Is it a pipe dream in this society as we look at America? We just were talking to Pat Boone about what he feels. Uh, 
with the abortion and, and the, the perverseness of our society, the things that we have to fight against as Christians? Are we, are we really looking up into the sky and just wishing for something that will never actually happen when we ask for unity amongst believers, never mind the whole culture? I'm happy to report to you <clears throat> that there is probably uh, the greatest and fastest growing grassroots movement in the world is that local, ordinary, pew-sitting member who is more than ready for this. Uh, the problem is not with the pew. It's at the administrative level. It's at the hierarchy level. It's protecting their colony rather than evangelizing. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to report to you, and I have been to places like Briarwood Presbyterian Church of Birmingham, Alabama, which is one of the great churches of our times. And when you get out of the, the executive level and just get with the people, it is unbelievable how much unity, not of structure, but in spirit, that is now existing across all racial lines. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, these people are not writing the resolutions and writing the constitutions at this time. But that's the way God works. God, somehow or another, at this particular time, we are, and that's why the political situation is shaking so, because these polls are not coming from the executive level. They, they're coming from grassroots people. Mm -hmm. And grassroots people are taking a stand, uh, saying, you're welcome, and saying, why don't you stay at my home? And, uh, you know, and, and, and let, let me give you an example. As you know, I'm president of the STEP Foundation. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that STEP Foundation is attempting to do is to surround every problem in Dallas, Texas, with white Christians who have the influence and affluence to solve that problem. Uh, I'll give you an illustration. And we're working basically with five great big white churches who have a combined membership of 50,000, just five churches. The worst housing project in the world was Rose Terrace of uh, Dallas, Texas. And HUD and nobody had any money to put a roof on it. What was it like? Uh, it was broken window panes with people still standing there. It was uh, the basic problem was the roof. It rained in every apartment. About three months ago, out of five churches, 840 men and women re-roofed Rose Terrace. This is grassroots. Mm -hmm. This is this is the people shocking the pastor. <laughs> yeah. uh, the elementary school in that neighborhood uh, was just a place where you. It was the Siberia of the school system. You know, if you were a poor teacher, poor principal, poor everything, they sent you to Rose Terrace. We took on that school, and that school now has 67. Uh, full-time volunteer workers from playground to uh, lunch tables to helping in the restrooms and what have you. All of these have come out of white congregations. We have matched affluent white Christians with poor housing project uh, women with six children, head of their families. And they have not gone with a handful of money. They have gone with friendship. Mm -hmm. They have said, where do you buy your food? 
Have you ever thought about buying at a wholesale place? Now, here's this rich woman who buys at the wholesale market, and here's this poor woman who doesn't even know it exists. You see, it's that kind of relationship. We, we well now have matched over 3,000 families. And the bottom line is we have not had to beg for volunteers from the rich, affluent community to come and be matched up with the poverty community. Now, that's the bottom line. You see, now, if we would ask the hierarchy of Boston, could that be possible? They would have that tied up in one committee after another for the next 10 years. But the Step Foundation doesn't go it that way. We go to pastors who have people who are ready to move, mm -hmm. you see. And very soon we're going to have a, a complete book on how we're doing it in Dallas. We just have one city right now. This is obviously a tremendous definition of, of what being Christian means, I mean, to work like that. When you look back at Sweet Home and your upbringing and the fact that you saw miracles every day, is this type of simple grassroots action the way to get Christ back into our lives, back into our society now? Is this the way to do it? By all means, by all means. Uh, one of the things that uh, every city needs, every city needs uh, a good uh, uh, committee, uh, people like Michael Haynes, President of Garden Conwell, and other folks. Uh, the uh, various people in high office who are Christians to sit down and point out what the problem is. Yeah. See, we first have to know the issue. Then second, we have to determine who's responsible. Then we have to determine who in the Christian church knows the person who is responsible for this matter. And we've got to pay him a visit of friendship, but not only friendship, but elicit his support. And then we have to marshal our forces to answer. We have the soldiers. We have the resources. Uh, let me give you another illustration. Right in Brooklyn, Paul Moore, in his life in a city, now has a radio program, and I make this suggestion. And on this radio program, he brings in people who are doing things. He lets them explain over the radio what he's doing. And then somebody, for instance, somebody said, uh, we're feeding people, but we need a uh, cooler. We need a deep freeze. And right on that air, a Christian calls in and says, I have one in my garage, and, but I don't have a truck to get it to you. And then right on the air, a man calls and says, well, I have a truck, but I have a bad back. And then right on the air, two <laughs> men say, well, I'll meet you there and help load it, do you see? Yeah. And I mean, this, this network, uh, we've tried the other way. We, 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 we sat back during the 50s and 60s and said, well, just take it out of our paycheck. Just take it out of our taxes. And boy, that bite became bigger and bigger. And we looked up and we found out that the poor were not being uh, ministered to, but the taxes were still growing and the, the administrators of the poverty were moving into the $100,000 homes. Well, I have nothing against $100,000 homes. I own one myself, but I would... I, I, wa I want to make sure that the people that I'm to help are also moving into better places, do you see? Yeah. So we tried the other way. We tried to let the government do it. It failed, and it failed at a cost of well now over $100 billion in the poverty program. Now we still need the, 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 the taxes. But we still, we now need people to surround these institutions. I'm going to bet that you believe that this is the best way to evangelize. 
No, no, no. Okay, then I'm wrong. You straight me up. I go the other way around. I'd be glad to give it to you because that question came up in Lausanne, and I, I hope everybody listening to me will get closer to your radio. <laughs> uh, in Lausanne, the first sermon preached by Dr. Billy Graham, uh, winning the laws at any cost, mm -hmm. and he delivered one of the most powerful messages on winning the laws. Winning the laws. The second sermon on the second day was doing good deeds will win lost people. How can you tell a hungry belly baby to be saved before you feed him? And that was the argument. Now those two sermons split that conference in Luzon right up the middle. You had to either be a winner or a feeder, a feeder or winner. I mean, and I do not stretch, we almost had fistfights uh, between the uh, American white evangelical and the European white evangelical and the American Negro and the third world. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. It is by works. It is show me your works and I'll see your faith, do you see? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the white evangelical said it is our job to win people. I was on to bring the closing message. Oh, boy. Now, interesting how God works. Your messages were supposed to be in the office six months ahead of time. I landed and didn't have my message. They threatened to cut me off the program because I didn't have the message. But God didn't give me my, I had some sermons. I told him, I have 12 sermons in my briefcase. Pick either one. I'll preach either one. But I don't have God's message. I didn't get God's message until Wednesday morning before the Thursday that I was to speak. And they were really mad at me because they had to give it to interpreters. They say. But the Lord came through. And what I did, I gave to them what is my real gut feeling about how the thing is. It's not whether we shall reach them or feed them. It's not whether we shall win them or clothe them. It's both. But the priority is so important. And so I had this great big baseball diamond drawn up above the pulpit on the screen. And then I explained how you score successfully in baseball. You do not hit the ball and go third, second, first home. You're out. You don't hit the ball and go second, third, and home. You're out. You could imagine if your team was in uh, the uh, playoffs and last half of the ninth inning and you got two men on base and a guy hits the ball and runs to third. <laughs> I mean, they'd kill it. They'd say so it is in this whole matter of what we're talking about, what the church is to do. The church is, first of all, to touch first base. First base is winning them to Christ. Winning them to Christ if his stomach is empty. Winning them to Christ if he is sick. Winning them to Christ if he has no clothes. And don't let nobody out there argue that you cannot come to Christ without clothes, without fine homes, without being in fine houses and riding good cars, because I'm example A. I was reared in a log cabin. I did not have fine clothes. I tied my shoes with wire. I walked in the snow. I got frostbitten, and I went to school with nothing but molasses and a whole cake to eat on, but I came to Jesus. Do you see what I mean? Now, at that point, all of my white evangelicals gave me a standing ovation. But the second point, they set back down. Once you touch first, you have not scored. 
You do not leave first, go to the dugout, and wait on the rapture. <laughs> and that's, that's the way so many people are doing it. Just get them saved, then come on out of the game, sit in the dugout, and wait on the rapture. No, you have to move to second. You've got to stay in the game. Born-again people then must at second develop this economy, develop this called-out group in which there is no east, no west, no north, no south, in which there is agape and perfect love so the world can see the difference. The world awaits to see this, this, this body that can handle, and as I said in, in, in Lausanne, not only the brotherhood question, but the world awaits this body that can handle the brother-in-law question. <laughs> see, if pimps and prostitutes can handle not only the brotherhood question, but the brother-in-law question, what's wrong with the church? And so then the church must have a, its first base ministry, which is evangelizing. Second base ministry, which is discipling and producing this great body and in the book of Acts, ye shall be my demonstration, my witnesses. The, the world will be able to look at you. Now, you still can't come home. And there are many great big white congregations who, who, who are flunking out at this test. They say, we're winning everybody and everybody loves everybody. Now, that's all we got to do. This is, they call them love sinners. <laughs> we're winning everybody and everybody's loving everybody. But no, that's third. You cannot score from second home. That's third. Now, what's at third? Third is what I've been talking about. Third is doing something at Rose Terrace. Third is doing something at Housing Authority. Third is opening up our Lord's Kitchen at, in Los Angeles where we will feed both morning and night. Third is programs like TBN uh, Operation Blessing that gave us 50,000 pounds of beans and rice that we have given to the poor. Third is our Fragment Center, where two weeks ago we gave away 5,200 pieces of clothing and 200 pair of shoes. Third is Mount Zion Towers that we built for the senior citizens. Third is political action. Third is me marching in, in, in Dallas with Jerry Falwell against pornography. That's all third base operation, but nobody must go and volunteer at third who hadn't been the first. Now that's where the poverty program got messed up, under Lyndon Johnson. Mm -hmm. Lyndon Johnson paid no attention to first and second. He just recruited J uh, PhDs who couldn't do J-O-Bs and sent them to third. And they stole it. They robbed us. <laughs> you see? They shafted us. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Because they didn't have no first base experience. They didn't know nothing about the love of God. And just from a humanist point of view, they went down and tried to rebuild America for the poor, and we got the $100 billion bill, and you go to the cities that they rebuilt, and they're worse now than they were when they started building. And that's not altogether true. There's been some improvement. Finally, if we get a hold of this, are we going to see a revival? I don't want to you know, get your prophetic viewpoint oh. here, but I look at the mail, and I know a lot of people are discouraged. And we, we were talking about it a few years back, but... Boy, with the way things are going, you know, you sometimes just get a little defeated. Can we still see it? You see, one of the tragedies of the name it, claim it, and blessings is they overlook the great blessing that God can give you. 
but he gives that in response to you working and reaching and blessing people, and that is the joy of the Lord. Everybody wants a split-level home, a Mercedes-Benz, a coat, a mink stole, rings on every finger. But if that is what God is all about, then Beverly Hills must be Jerusalem. <laughs> because in Beverly Hills, they already have rings on every finger. They already have mink stole for every night. And they got Mercedes-Benz, Rolls Royce, Ferraris, and everything else. They don't have no joy of the Lord, they have a psychiatrist on every other corner. So if that's the mission of the church, we have been beat by Beverly Hills. The mission of the church is to tell that woman who may, in fact, never have had a car like my mother, who's caught transit all of your life, that you can have the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord, will it, it, it's a sustained high that you don't need to buy no drugs for. <laughs> and I mean it's sustained right on through sufferings and trials and tribulations. This high is sustained and the joy of the Lord. The greatest gift that I have right now is the joy of the Lord. I'm happy in the Lord. And the greatest gift that the Mount Zion members have that I've led them into, I have shown them a lot about investments and young fellows out of buy your house and whatever, but it's the joy of the Lord. Dr. Hill, thanks so much. Thank you, sir. You've been listening to Dr. Edward Victor Hill. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.